You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Twitter suspends more accounts for divisive social commentary and coordinated manipulation. Facebook blocks accounts belonging to Myanmar leaders... U.S. Senators are unconvinced by claims that it's dangerous to research voting machine vulnerabilities. The House takes a look at the CVE database. And Australia's new government reorganizes its cybersecurity portfolio. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, August 28, 2018. Yesterday, Twitter suspended 488 more accounts, this time for sharing divisive social commentary and coordinated manipulation, as opposed to the inauthenticity Facebook stressed last week. Almost 100 of the newly suspended Twitter accounts claim to be located in the U.S. Many of those were less than a year old. It's perhaps worth noting that Twitter displayed some self-conscious even-handedness in this week's takedowns, Some of the socially divisive stuff it exhibited no longer welcome on its platform consisted of anti-President Trump screeds and memes. And there's a gesture toward purging inauthenticity, too. Some, if not all, of the blocked accounts were linked to the coordinated efforts of Iranian actors. Twitter may have more difficulty maintaining a principled stance against divisive social commentary. Construed literally, this tendency would seem likely to transform Twitter into a 21st-century analog of some of the older print newspapers that sought to specialize in good news, human interest stories, fun facts, recipes, and sports. Scores only with sports. But it seems unlikely that any social medium could survive such a viewpoint-neutral blandness, which leads many to suspect that Twitter may have preferences for some forms of commentary that strike it, unreflectively, as uncontroversial, but which in fact will lead substantial swaths of its users to see the platform itself as biased. It's not an easy task for Twitter or any other social platform. Concerns about radicalization, bullying, and even fomenting violence are real, and social media companies feel considerable pressure to do something about them. Among the more serious instances of social media being used to foment violence have been the flash lynch mobs that have sprung up in India, in response to generally false reports of abduction and other abuse of children and women. On a more widespread scale, the massacre of Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar by the majority Buddhist state 
has been incited, popularized, and sustained in significant part by Facebook, as the Times of London reports. Facebook has responded by blocking accounts of regime leaders, but the baleful climate of opinion these leaders serve is alive, well, and online. Of course, Twitter, Facebook, and Google are private organizations, free to adopt pretty much any viewpoint they choose, in the U.S. at any rate. But the quasi-monopolistic position a small group of companies are perceived as having achieved in the market has led some to think they ought to be treated more like utilities than newspapers. White House economic adviser Kudlow says the possibility is undergoing some preliminary study. Google has warned U.S. Senator Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania, that the senator's staff had been subjected to apparently unsuccessful spearfishing attacks. The accounts targeted were dormant, left over from the 2016 campaign, and most of the staffers were campaign workers who've since moved on anyway. Google did suggest the Fishers were a foreign intelligence service, but whose foreign intelligence service Mountain View left as an exercise for the reader. Unease over election hacking and influence operations persists in U.S. political circles, where DEFCON hacking demos are being taken seriously. The Senate Intelligence Committee yesterday gave the back of its hand to a letter from Election Systems and Software, the leading vendor of voting machines in the U.S. ESS didn't particularly care for the goings-on at DEFCON, where white hats were given the opportunity to make a run at voting systems. The Washington Post quotes Election Systems and Software as saying, "...forums open to anonymous hackers must be viewed with caution." as they may be a green light for foreign intelligence operatives who attend for purposes of corporate and international espionage. We suspect that our adversaries are paying very close attention. Since this would seem to rule out the sort of sensible vulnerability research one would think important to enhanced security, the senators were unsympathetic. After all, if you can hack the Pentagon to make it more secure, what's the problem with hacking voting machines? The state authorities who use them are too poorly resourced to fix or update them when problems are found. Perhaps there's more to be said on the matter, but it seems difficult to disagree with a note from the staff of Senator Harris, Democrat of California, which told the Washington Post that, quote, independent security research does not jeopardize election integrity. Instead, it helps us design more secure voting systems. Speaking of vulnerability discovery and disclosure, some members of the U.S. House of Representatives are pressing for reform of the Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures database. The Department of Homeland Security has become increasingly unable to keep pace with rising demands for vulnerability information. There are also reports of bugs having been submitted without a timely, or in some case any, response. Republican members of the House Energy and Commerce Committee have written the Secretary of Homeland Security asking for improvements to the platform. One of the improvements they're considering lies within the authority of Congress. They may wish to give the CVE program its own budget line. Secure networking firm Infoblox recently surveyed cybersecurity professionals for their take on IoT devices on their networks to try to get a handle on what is known and unknown when it comes to BYOD policies. Sean Tierney is Director of Cyber Intelligence at Infoblox. The whole notion of shadow IT 
you've been doing this for a long time, you probably remember back in the day when most organizations didn't have an IT department. <laughs> they just kind of dealt with it within within their individual teams. And then there was a need to kind of commoditize it, you know, kind of bring it all under one umbrella and get the most um, economy as a scale. And those are perfectly reasonable and sound business reasons for doing this sort of thing. Then IT with regulation and bureaucracy kind of became slow. And so you saw teams within companies, within organizations, kind of start picking up a little bit of that work again, right? And that's the shadow IT. It's the guy uh, that knows where all the the software is that your department uses, and he's the technical expert that can help, even though that's not his job. He's not an IT guy. He might not even be a technology worker, but he knows all the software uh, and tools that the the team is using. And so he's the guy that helps everybody else, right? right. But the IoT devices that are not company-sanctioned and company-managed are really shadow devices, right? So meaning that you don't have visibility into them uh, because you're not managing them. Whether you own them or not as an organization, right, you may have devices in your network that the company purchased, right? But because IT is not managing them, they're unmanaged devices, they're shadow devices. So can you take us through what were some of the key findings from the report? 33% of those organizations have more than 1,000 shadow IoT devices on their network every day, right? And we're talking about small to medium enterprises, not necessarily very large corporations, which we would expect those to be much larger. When when asking employees what were they doing with their personal devices, how were they using them, 39% of them were using them for things like social media, apps, games, films, right? Um, We see things like 88% of IT leaders think that they have a a well-placed and well-implemented and well-followed IT security policy, and yet 24% of the employees report not knowing the policy or not following it. And then in terms of of kind of what we see in terms of actual devices, 48% of the organizations find that they're seeing fitness trackers, things like Fitbits on there, um, smart TVs, and then digital assistants like Alexa or Google Home. And so we find these these kind of this mix kind of interesting because on the one hand you have things that you would normally expect from a, a BYOD perspective, laptops and tablets, right? And then yet when you go and look at what people are using and what they're bringing into, you see a lot of these other types of non-traditional BYOD devices, right? So if they're fitness trackers connected to the to the guest network at the company, what kind of exposure is that creating for that company? When we look at that, we want to think in terms of, of a good, solid policies and practices. So I think that, that depending on a corporation's or an organization's risk appetite, that perhaps a guest network or a employee network that's segmented from their corporate business network may be a good idea. They have to do their own risk analysis. But that's, at a minimum, one way to look at how they can separate that kind of traffic um, and kind of take, take control of that sort of thing. So they don't, if they're not permitting those devices to come onto their network, they're not giving the passwords for them to join or they're using network access control to keep those kinds of things off their business network. They're still affording their employees a, a venue for using that, those sorts of tools and keeping it off their corporate networks. That's Sean Tierney from Infoblocks. You can find the results of their IoT survey on their website. The Bank of Spain has experienced intermittent distributed denial-of-service attacks since Sunday, but says its services haven't been disrupted, so the attacks remain at a nuisance level. Australia's newly formed government won't have a dedicated cybersecurity ministry. Instead, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton will assume responsibility for cybersecurity and critical infrastructure protection. 
Not all investigations result in convictions or indictments or even conclusions. Switzerland has closed its investigation into a 2014 cyber espionage incident involving defense firm Ruag. The results were inconclusive. No perpetrator could be identified with confidence. Russia had been suspected, and Swiss authorities did say they believed it unlikely any other actor than a nation-state could have carried out the attack, but it wasn't possible to attribute the incident to any particular government. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Justin, welcome back. Uh, you all recently published your mid-year Threatscape report. Uh, bring us up to date. What's the latest? Uh, so the latest is uh, we're seeing an uptick in various areas. Uh, the, the first one would be an uptick in uh, Iranian uh, cyber attacks around the world, particularly uh, we're seeing them heavily concentrated in North America. And also we're seeing that uh, affect multiple in, uh, industries, particularly financial services uh, and resources clients, which would be uh, utilities, critical infrastructure, uh, things like that. Some of the other highlights that we're seeing, increased attacks versus industrial control systems. As you know, your listeners hear about industrial control system security or OT network security quite a bit uh, on the show. So I'm I'm really happy that it's getting a lot of airplay and a lot of notice. But uh, industrial control systems, Dave, are still really vulnerable to external attacks. It seems like Every week I'm having a, a meeting with a client that uh, that claims that their OT network is completely air-gapped and there's no way to access it. But then you find out there's some perhaps some private VPNs to various vendors in the background and it's not quite as secure as people uh, as people thought. And 
uh, OT network security is also uh, extremely difficult uh, given the uh, the nature of the systems. Number one, they are not considered IT systems. So a lot of the maintenance, a lot of the people that are accessing them are not your your typical information security or information technology uh, personnel. Uh, so it's not very well understood uh, that operating system, which is the same operating systems that we operate on every day, typically Linux, uh, Windows, if you can believe it, Solaris uh, is still out there. Um, they're actually very static. They don't have a lot of the same tools that Brethren systems and IT have. So it makes it a little bit difficult to work on those. Uh, and it's also difficult uh, because it, there is a lack of understanding around the operational impact of making changes to these systems. And uh, what I mean is uh, if we're doing an incident response or a threat hunt for one of our resources, perhaps uh, resources customers, one of our critical infrastructure customers, let's say it's a utility, we being an outside vendor or even we from IT and information security, we don't know what would happen if we rebooted this system that could have been compromised. We don't know the operational impact. Perhaps it's if you reboot that system, then uh, then the turbine restarts and power production ceases. Or perhaps it's uh, if you reboot that system or you put on you make one little change to the registry and that system goes down. What happens to the manufacturing floor? Perhaps it stops production. Perhaps it creates a, an environmental or a, a health and safety issue. So um, industrial control system security is still a very big challenge. And we are seeing more and more nation state activity across uh, those types of systems. Uh, and I guess uh, to pick on one more uh, trend that we are seeing is that we're seeing more uh, advanced persistent threat actors. So nation state actors are not just focusing on areas of opportunity around OT networks, but we're also seeing them they are targeting more and more financial systems and they're doing things for financial gain. If you were to look at this from a cyber espionage uh, nation state level, I think it's very valid that uh, these attack teams are starting to recoup some of the investment costs that the nation states have been putting into them. Meaning, why make your cyber espionage team a loss leader? Why not actually use that same attack team to go out and recover some funds and use them in different areas, particularly uh, with using uh, digital currencies. Yeah, if you're going to sack the city, you might as well loot the banks while you're at it, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. That is the thinking. Yeah. All right. Well, as always, Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. 
And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.